from all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. A battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I say no contract, you say no code. No contract, no If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live today online And on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, the Memphis Seven are ordered reinstated by a federal judge. Prison deaths mount in Alabama. Andrea Alvarez is running for Huntsville City School Board and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio or finish our stream online... Or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can follow us anywhere. Uh, You can find anything online. We're on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. And just a reminder, your support does help us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners, so it really does make a difference. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, or buy our new hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, or become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And if you're a member of a union, then you should uh, maybe start some conversations in your local about sponsoring the show. And you can reach out to me for more details on that. Uh, so, yeah, we are live today. We are live. Um, we had a pre-tape last week, uh, but but we're back, back in the saddle today. We appreciate everybody's time, and uh, um, we're just going to jump right into Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do mostly every week where we talk about what happened in the labor movement in the South in the last week. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter with his permission, Who Gets the Bird? which compiles this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then you should definitely subscribe to his newsletter. It is Who Gets the Bird at whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the weeks of July 23rd through August 13th, with the caveat that because... This is a bigger roundup than normal. The NLRB filings under 10 workers have been left out. A whopping 
221 coffee shop workers for local chain Hine Brothers in Louisville, Kentucky, are unionizing with 32BJ SEIU. That is an enormous amount of coffee workers for a local chain. So really excited to see that campaign beginning. 115 transit workers for a subcontractor in Norfolk and Newport News, Virginia, are organizing with ATU Local 1177. At least 89 food service workers at local chain operator Via 313 in Austin, Texas, are forming an independent union, Restaurant Workers United. 16 more workers at Texas chain Tiff's Treats in San Antonio, Texas, are unionizing as well. And continuing on in Texas, 81 workers for Republic Wine and Liquor Distributors are unionizing in Houston with Teamsters Local 988. In the past three weeks, 77 Starbucks workers at four stores, including one in Denison, Texas, have filed for elections with Workers United. And uh, just some background on that, because that is Pretty slow for the Starbucks workers campaign in terms of new filings, even though it's a lot, uh, you know, in the broader context of the last 20 years or so. The company declared a month or so ago that August 1st is the cutoff for any non-union stores to get a raise and other benefit increases on the condition that they hadn't unionized at that point. So that's totally illegal. It is illegal to offer benefits or uh, punishment for unionization or for not unionizing. That's definitely illegal. But uh, the system is broken in America, and so bosses can do a lot of things that are illegal. And so um, it's possible that we see the pace of election filings pick back up once the non-union stores are granted those equal benefits at the end of the month, which is pretty, you know, which is rational, right? Uh, Many workers are naturally going to want to lock in those gains before resuming boat rocking. 26 workers for Southern Company Gas in Atlanta are joining IBEW Local 1997 and 20 warehouse workers for Capstone Logistics in Medley, Florida are unionizing with Teamsters Local 769. In wins and losses, 502 workers at 18 stores voted to unionize with Workers United at 14 of those shops for a combined margin of 183 to 84. The past three weeks, unfortunately, brings us no new shops in the South, though, with the only group of Starbucks workers down South that voted lost their election, losing their union vote in Smyrna, Tennessee. 44 stagehands and others at D.C.'s Shakespeare Theater Company voted 23-6 to to join IATSE Local 22. 16 more tree trimmers voted, voted to join the IBEW, this time at Wright Tree Service in Lexington, Kentucky, joining IBEW Local 369 with a vote of 7-2. to 63 workers at Ingert Plumbing and Heating in Knoxville lost their union election voting 16 to 33 against joining UA Local 102. And finally, 22 workers who make wires lost their union bid with IBEW Local 666 10 to 11 at REA Magnet Wire Company in Ashland, Virginia.
In strikes and bargaining, Hillsborough County, Florida teachers are at an impasse with the district. In higher education, hundreds of staff at D.C.'s American University are counting down the days until they go on strike with SEIU Local 500. Starbucks workers struck at several places across the country, including in Jacksonville, Florida, Richmond, Virginia, and Anderson, South Carolina, where, get this, the company has charged the workers with kidnapping for doing a March on the Boss and is barring all of those workers who were involved in the March on the Boss from entering any Starbucks anywhere, even as a customer. That is so wild. It is wild, especially considering that there is video and audio of the incident where they are alleged of kidnapping their boss, where it is clear, absolutely, incontrovertibly clear that they did not... uh, Kidnap their boss. <laughs> it's wild. Totally wild. UPS Teamsters have launched their contract campaign in earnest with less than a year until the contract expires, starting with a focus on atrociously hot working conditions. That issue coincides with rallies across the country as the clock starts ticking with a hard deadline of August 1st, 2023. New Teamsters President Sean O'Brien said, We will not extend negotiations by a single day. We'll either have a signed agreement on that day or be hitting the pavement. He also met with the Pope last week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Outside of UPS, the Teamsters have a much quieter fight brewing at Costco, where 17,000 workers rejected a contract and are moving towards a national work stoppage. Though that really just means East and West Coast Costco's, where the Teamsters have members, uh, which is primarily, if not exclusively, through mergers and buyouts. Outside of D.C., the largest local of the the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU Local 689, held a nine-day strike against mega-contractor Transdev, which operates the metro area's paratransit services. In Louisville, Kentucky, workers with ATU Local 1447 have been holding informational pickets and rallies over workplace safety and ongoing contract negotiations. Biden's emergency board on the railroad disputes issued its recommendations for a settlement on Tuesday, which proposes reasonable wage gains, as far as I can tell, but, 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 does literally nothing to address the understaffing and sick leave, leaving railroad workers in America with zero sick days. Very frustrating. I wouldn't say disappointing, because that implies that I expected better. Uh, but very, very frustrating to see those recommendations come out because, you know, this is one of those opportunities where Biden can live up to the hype, right? Yeah. He's been hyped as the most pro-union president in our lifetimes. Here is an opportunity for him to try to live up to that hype and intervene in a way that's actually going to settle this dispute on behalf of the rail- railway workers. And it's really just... Like I said, very frustrating to see that most of the issues that they have have not been addressed in these recommendations. Insane. U.S. Postal Service unions like the National Association of Letter Carriers and the American Postal Workers Union, NALC and APWU, are calling on management to wrap up hiring amid chronic understaffing. For context, the U.S. Postal Service employs 60% as many people as it did in 1995. Which is wild, also wild, and also a hit on the most pro-union president in history, Joe Biden. 
Trump appointee Louis DeJoy is still Postmaster General. A true shame. Insane. A 6,000-worker-strong steelworkers strike at Goodyear slash Bridgestone in Iowa, North Carolina, Ohio, and Kansas was avoided. It came right down to the wire, but ended in a tentative agreement. Warrior Met strikers with UMWA in Brookwood, Alabama, were hit with an absolutely ludicrous, ludicrous stuff coming out of the NLRB, claiming that the union is liable for an absolutely obscene $13 million to cover damages from the strike, including unbelievably lost production. Uh, We talked about this a while ago in more detail, but apparently the union agreed to something like this in principle. Orders of magnitude less expensive, though. 33 times less expensive is the estimate that they were giving. It would be an unbelievably bad precedent if it's upheld. So we'll see. We'll keep you updated on that, of course. Um, It's not a union fight per se, but 80 owner-operators for freight company HUD Transportation in Houston, Texas, went on strike for higher rates. Call center workers at federal contractor Maximus held another one-day strike with CWA across four centers in the south in Bogalusa, Louisiana, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Chester, Virginia, and London, Kentucky. In D.C., Senate cafeteria workers put up another picket line with Unite Here Local 23, and apparently a priest is helping out. Teamsters Local 783 went on strike at Sherwin-Williams in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and that has come to an end in the last three weeks. In political fights, the Worker Power Coalition, which was born out of the painters and the communication workers IUPAT and CWA push as uh, CWA was coming into office to make the PRO Act core to the uh, Democrats' legislative agenda, The Worker Power Coalition apparently wants to force a vote in September, though they are not even pretending that they hope it passes, which is a shame. Henry Cuellar, who just barely beat his Texas AFL-CIO-endorsed progressive primary challenger with the help of Democratic leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, is now introducing a bill to end federal protections for millions of workers in the name of the gig economy insane stuff. Campaigns for and against enshrining right to work in Tennessee's constitution are heating up. We'll be talking to people more in depth about that in the coming weeks, but we have talked about it in the past. You can go back and watch our interview with Vonda McDaniel, president of the Nashville Central Labor Council, if you want to get caught up on what was happening a couple of years ago about that. And finally, in internal union politics, it's summer, so it is union convention season with the steelworkers, the letter carriers, and RWDSU holding their conventions in the past few weeks. Um, Lots of lots lots of stuff. Some of it good, some of it not good. Uh, But moving on from that, we do have some really really good news out of Tennessee. Y'all will remember talking uh, us talking about and talking to some of those baristas, the seven Memphis baristas who were fired a while back, clearly in retaliation for their union support. Well, the NLRB sought a 10-J injunction, which is the the quickest way that the NLRB has to remedy workplace retaliation. Um and, and that's immediate temporary relief if there is reasonable cause to believe the firings are retaliatory while a fuller case works its way through the courts. The immediate relief being reinstatement in the term in, in, in the case of fired employees. 
Well, last week, a federal judge in Tennessee granted this relief to the workers, saying that Starbucks has five days to reinstate the seven employees. This is definitely good to see, but it is taking taking far too long. This is I, I told y'all the 10J injunction is the the immediate, super quick, speedy way to get this fixed. And uh, we are... How long ago was it that these folks were fired? Four months? Five months? Insane. Insane. And obviously, the workers testified in the hearings with the federal judge that uh, support for the union was really diminished by this campaign or by this retaliation against these workers by the company. One of the workers who remained in the shop testified that immediately following the firings, uh, people stopped wearing their union pins in the shop for fear of retaliation themselves. Uh, people also stopped talking to folks about the union. Unless there was one guy who said, I didn't talk to anybody else until after the election about the union, unless I knew for sure that they were a union supporter. And that's that is exactly the purpose of doing stuff like that. And that was the result. And also one of the Memphis seven mentioned that they remain. They won their election. The, the store still won the election. But uh, they mentioned in these hearings that they remain the only union Starbucks location in Memphis, almost certainly because of this kind of thing, right? So uh, Starbucks says they disagree, of course, and they're going to appeal. We'll see if the appeal is heard. The ruling is out there from Judge Lippman, and I read some of it last night, and it's really methodical. Um, it really goes line by line, so to speak, explaining the law, explaining each each side's case, and explaining why, <laughs> explaining why the worker's case is stronger. Um, so it seems to me hearing an appeal on this uh, would be strange, but uh, never underestimate the U.S. court's willingness to pummel workers. So we'll see. We'll keep you updated on that for sure. Um, this is a big win for the Starbucks workers' legal case, though, and a big morale boost. Uh, I, I, like I said earlier, the Memphis 7 noted how they are still the only store in Memphis, still the only store in Memphis to have unionized, which has to be at least in part because of these retaliatory and illegal firings. If they're able to go back into work, they posit it will help make other workers feel more secure in what are supposed to be their federally protected right to organize, their constitutional, uh, their constitutionally protected right to associate, to freely assemble, to freely associate. Uh, and this is also a helpful sign for the more than 70 workers across the country who have been fired in retaliation, including two in Scottsboro, right down the road. Um, and they are on strike today because they have not been reinstated yet. This ruling was issued about three days ago, I believe. The ruling was issued something like three days ago. They haven't been reinstated yet. So the workers that are left went out on strike in support of the Memphis 7, uh, the folks who were fired, and uh, to try to make the company uh, follow the law. <laughs> law and order unionism. That's, uh, that's what we're going to call it. Yeah. I mean, we have a crime wave happening across this country in yeah. Starbucks after Starbucks, and it's coming from their corporate headquarters. It's coming from their CEO, Howard Schultz, and it's coming from uh, the various layers of management and union busting attorneys that they've hired. 
And, you know, I'd like to see something done about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The TV people love to get us riled up about crime waves. Here's a crime wave. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Let's hit another quick story before we go to a break. The union representing workers at NBC News announced on Twitter a few days ago that they won $200,000 in back pay for their members. That's really exciting. Um, The issue stemmed from NBC unilaterally reducing salaries without bargaining with the union. They had a union contract, and uh, NBC unilaterally reduced salaries. Uh, We know here... That if you get a contract, if you have a union contract, you can't do that. The boss can't unilaterally change your salary without bargaining with you. So after two years of delays and appeals by the company, they were ordered to give the workers the back pay that they were owed and put up a notice saying that they won't break the law again, speaking of a crime wave. It's funny um, because since... The breaking of the law was so illegal. All of these delays that the lawyers at NBC were able to secure in the last two years, you know, this took two years. Um, it it probably, all, all that probably did was increase the eventual payout, right? Because if you're paying these people at this reduced salary for two years, instead of giving them back pay, you know, a month later, all you're, ha- all you're doing is increasing the payout that you're going to have to give these people. So, Right. Uh, whereas you could have just, uh, you know, followed the law. And, done you know, the right thing. Done the right thing. Maybe negotiated a salary reduction if, if that was in order, if, if the finances demanded it or whatever. Um, you know, people are, people are reasonable. Workers are reasonable. And workers understand, you know, like if you show us the books and, and, and you show us a willingness to, to tighten up your belt as well, you know, like if there's an, if there's really a, if there's really a pinch at NBC and maybe some of the executives are willing to take a pay cut as well, I imagine that plenty of the workers would be willing to, uh, would be willing to sacrifice themselves. At least talk about it. At least talk about it. But, uh, but that's not what NBC wanted to do. They broke the law, and now, now they had to pay. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, this, this really speaks to the importance of, of having a union contract and the say that it gives you over your workplace. I was talking Absolutely. to somebody the other day um, – you know about uh, about the Starfinder or or Path Path Star something. There's there's like some role playing tabletop RPG game where workers there unionized recently. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, and uh, and this guy's a big you know he, he's a big kind of D and D guy. And uh, I told him about that, and he was like, "Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that that would be an industry where you would need to unionize, where where you know conditions were bad." I've heard all I've heard horror stories. He said about you know the video game industry and the crunch, you know that they call it before the release. Um, but I I didn't realize that you know there were issues, and I was like, "Well, you know, to be honest, I I really I can't recall. I couldn't recall at at that time. I was having this conversation, and and I'm not sure now um, any specific." What what the issues were, or even if there were was any specific issue, but even if I, I and this is something that I always say, even if your workplace is great, even if you've got a great workplace, you love your boss, you think you get paid enough, you think your benefits are fine, unionizing and 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 locking that in in a contract is still good, and in fact, if the best time to unionize 
is when you've got a good boss, you know, theoret- you know, if such a thing were to exist. <laughs> um, you know, that would be the best time to unionize. You know, if you've got a good boss who's paying you well, who, who's got you've got a good relationship with, and he's not going to, uh, you know, try to, or, or she's not going to try to break the law to try to destroy your union or try to, you know, um, um, emaciate you, pummel you into poverty, stuff like that. Uh, that would be a great time to unionize and just lock that in because, because why? Well, that person might have a heart attack tomorrow. And you're going to have another boss. And there's no, no reason to believe that the next boss is going to be as good as this one. And also, who knows, they could have a stroke and become a totally different person the next day, right? They could just, something could happen and make them a bad boss. What, what you do when you unionize and you get a union contract is you, uh, uh, you lock in what you get in the contract. What the things that you put in the contract, you're able to lock that in. And if, you know, if my boss comes in the next tomorrow, next week, and starts trying to do crazy stuff outside of the contract, I can just I can just pull out the contract. I can just say, look, you know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Tough beans, right? Um, But I couldn't do that if I didn't have a union contract. You can't do that if you have a union contract, if you don't have a union contract Um, and and you're at will. If you don't have a union contract, your boss can fire you for any reason or no reason at all. So uh, demote you for any reason. Yeah, suspend and you for any reason. Reduce your salary for any reason, which is what happened at NBC. But they had a union contract, so they were able to get back pay. So there you go. We're going to go ahead and take a break really quick. On the other side, we are going to be talking to Eddie Burkhalter. Eddie Burkhalter is a uh, researcher at Alabama Appleseed, former reporter for the Aniston Star and the Alabama Political Reporter. We're going to be talking to him about the situation with prisons in Alabama. Uh, it's going to be a good conversation. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think all of us are going to learn a lot. Um so make sure you stay tuned. Uh, if you have a question for him uh, or for us, you can text us at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And uh, we'll, try to answer, uh, we'll try to get your question answered on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. 
Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor. My name is Jacob Morrison, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live here on the radio and online from the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. 
just a reminder, we've got a, uh, we are live on YouTube and Facebook and you can chat with other listeners of the show and, uh, and, and we can see the chat as well. We've got several people hanging out in the YouTube chat right now. Strom McCallum, Biometronome, Infinite Content, Tempest Lord Raihan. That is a very cool name. Um, and, uh, some of the, the, there was some discussion about what I was saying as we were going into the break about unionization and how, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you hate your job, right? So, um, the, and I think that's, that's really important. Biometronome mentions, I think people should realize that unionizing doesn't necessarily mean being the enemy of management. Uh, it doesn't automatically mean they're complaining about their workplace conditions. It seems to be a common mindset, and it's, uh, it's the way a lot of managers look at the concept of unions as well. Now, uh, you know, there's definitely going to be an inherent tension between the employer and the employee, you know, by, just by virtue of the fact that every dollar that every dollar that a boss makes, every dollar that the that goes into the owner's profits is a dollar that I'm not making, and vice versa, right? So there's going to be an inherent tension there. Um, but you are correct in that it doesn't necessarily mean that they hate their job. Uh, he, he goes on saying, for example, most workers in Costco and Trader Joe's are kind of happy with their jobs and are friendly with their managers. When I ask them, "Are you guys unionizing?" they seem to think I'm asking if they're if they hate their jobs, and that's just and 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 that's totally correct. In fact. Some of the Starbucks folks that we've talked to from Alabama have a similar uh, – they have a similar take in that I don't hate my job necessarily. I think, you know, I get paid maybe more than maybe more than some people do, but I see all the money that's going through my store, uh, and I know who is responsible for that. Who's responsible for that happening? And it's me. It's me. <laughs> it's me and my coworkers. It's not the boss over in Seattle, right? And so I should get more of the money that we're creating for this company. Um, and uh, Infinite Content says the reason that management fears unions is that it can cause the working class to arise en masse outside the workplace. And that's something that, that we've talked about before. Um, that, you know, there, there is definitely there's, there's a social element. To unionization um, that makes that that kind of educates people more about what's going on and 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 is 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 very very helpful uh, in in understanding you know understanding what's going on and who's good for you and and who's not good for you and what you can do about that. So yeah, let's go ahead and get to our guest Eddie Burkhalter. Eddie Burkhalter is a former reporter for the Aniston Star and the Alabama Political Reporter. He's now a researcher for Alabama Appleseed. Eddie, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is important stuff, so I appreciate you putting some focus on it. Yes, i i think I think it is. It, it's very important. Um, and uh, you know, you're pretty focused on prisons in Alabama, and and the, I had a, a, a couple of different topics that I wanted to touch on uh, with the prison system. Um, and and both of them are really pretty gross, but I think the worst we can hit the worst first, I guess. And and that's the issues around deaths in Alabama in Alabama's prisons. Um, and it caught my eye because it seemed like. For a while, almost every other day, you were tweeting the name of somebody else who had died, um, and, and and you know, so and so died at such and such prison. Prison, and we've got this, and we got this tweet from a uh, uh, from a D. Stroud. And when I asked you originally to come on, I hadn't seen this tweet, and I thought, 
You know, I thought it was definitely super important, but I was wondering if maybe just the fact of people dying um, was catching my eye more than maybe it was, you know, maybe I was kind of uh, exaggerating it in my mind because it's so horrifying. But I saw this tweet that said 19 people died in Alabama prisons in July. So it actually would have been, if you were tweeting out every death, it would have been something more, more, more than every other day. Uh, which is which is really, really, really bad. So what in the world is going on to make that happen? Yeah, so that, that tweet, Stroud, he, he, those numbers he got from uh, an investigative reporter, he does a really good job of tracking uh, prison deaths. Um, and, and I'll tell you some more of those numbers. Uh, she reports that in 2020, there were 10 confirmed drug-related deaths. Uh, the following year, there were 21. Uh, this year alone already, we've seen about 26 um, so, so it's, it's drugs. I mean, really there's so much drugs in our prisons and it, it's, it's coming in unabated and these overdoses are just stacking up. Um, and, and it's coming in mostly from the officers. We know this because during the COVID pandemic, when visitations were suspended, uh, drug deaths continued and, and they increased, they didn't slow down. And so, uh, we know how it's getting in the prisons, uh, but, but there doesn't seem to be a big push to stop it. And it's killing folks. I mean, you know, uh, I, I did a blog post and there's been some reporting on a guy named Chadwick Wade who died on July 4th. Uh, really tragic story. He he was begging for help uh, from the officers. Couldn't get it. Uh, lit some clothes on fire, put it outside his cell. There's some video footage of that um, that I've seen. Didn't get the help. Uh, told another uh, incarcerated person that he was just going to kill himself. He was going to get some fentanyl ordered to his cell, which he did in a segregation cell, we think. And uh, he overdosed. So it, it's tragic. Uh, there seems to be a lack of hope in our prisons, and it's 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 really tragic. How is it that nobody is being disciplined or fired for this kind of stuff? You know, you, you're you're saying it's coming in through the officers, um, and and presumably, if you know this, then uh, the Department of Corrections is aware of this issue. Yeah, they are. And the Department of Justice is, is aware, too. They, they, they mentioned this specifically in, in a report that they did prior to suing the state. Um, and there have been some arrests. There have been a few, um, but but they're not catching it, obviously. They're not catching it all. Uh, the officers I spoke to spoke to a current officer a couple days ago, and she told me, look, I haven't been searched coming into work in over a year. And and she her, her previous prison, uh, while they did search, uh, the officers who bring it in know how to get around that. And so... You know, it's, it's a multi, multifaceted problem. You have prisons that are that are overpopulated. You have prisons that are woefully understaffed. Guards are working extremely long hours, overtime, 50 hours a week. I mean, they're just, you know, there are videos of officers asleep in their cubicles, several different officers, different instances. So, you know, I just, there hasn't been a political will to deal with this. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, this is a, you know, a tough on crime state. Right. You know, we, we have that mentality. But these are human beings. These are brothers and sisters, people, uh, fathers. I mean, it, we just don't treat them like humans, you know, and, and I, I, I just I'm so sick of talking to mothers like Chadwick's mother uh, this past week. I know I'll talk to another mothers, I'm sure, next week. It just never ends. You said that. um you know, we're a tough on crime state, but if you listen to, you know, maybe some other people on uh, WVNN in Huntsville, you wouldn't know that uh, with um, 
you know, for example, the Alabama Attorney General has been trying to, if I understand it right, repeal the good time law or make it whatever it is. There are pushes to put more people in prison. Um, do you think that that is is uh, would be helpful to any of any of our problems, you know, in society or in the prisons? No, not at all. And, and so this push, uh, this, this involves a uh, the tragic shooting death of a, of a Bibb County um, uh, deputy. Uh, and, and there was some confusion uh, about how this person who was out at the time uh, was able to, to be released from, from prison. Uh, through uh, some good reporting at, at APR, uh, uh, they learned that he really shouldn't have been out. Uh, he should have been charged with a previous escape, wasn't charged, uh, and, and he would not have been out on good time. And so this, this idea that this was about good time is just, it's not true. Um, so no, uh, uh, we don't need to put more people in prisons. We need to address sentencing. You know, th- th- our prisons are overpopulated. We know this. Uh, they, they want to build these two new prisons and they're going forward with that plan. But that's not going to fix the overpopulation problem because they're going to shut down some of our existing prisons. So how are we going to fix this if we don't address sentencing? Uh, it just it just makes no sense to me. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask on that note, as you mentioned, Governor Ivey's main plan appears to be just to build new prisons to replace old prisons using federal COVID dollars to do so. Uh, but is there anything attached to this plan regarding sentencing reform or rehabilitation, any real policies in place attached to the new prisons that would ultimately reduce prison population? There's no, there's nothing related to sentencing reform. Uh, the, so the supporters of this plan say that look, we need these 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 new buildings to, to open up space for these more real rehabilitation programs. We don't have enough space, and we need these prisons to be able to do that. The issue is there's no additional funding to pay for that stuff. So tell me how that's going to work, right. and, and tell me how you're going to employ enough uh, correctional officers to fill these prisons when you can't employ correctional officers to fill the existing prisons. Let me tell you, I mean, in, in less than half of Alabama correctional officer positions were filled in early 2021. Less than half. Okay, ADOC has reported a net decrease of 258 officers so far in fiscal 2022, according to their own report. So, you know, I, I don't know what the plan is. Um, I guess the plan is to build these prisons and, and magically all these, these problems will, will go away. But that's not going to happen. Yeah, I I think it's worth mentioning at this point, you you mentioned it earlier about the DOJ. Uh, for those who are not familiar with it, the Department of Justice is involved with Alabama's prison system. Could you just give us like the, you know, the spark note summary there of, of what's going what's going down with that? How is the DOJ involved? Yeah. So uh, several years ago, they began investigating our prisons. Um, you know, the deaths then were, were, were terrible and, and violence, uh, sexual violence. Uh, so they, they issued two reports and they were really scathing reports. And gosh, you'd hope that people would pay attention to those reports and act, but it didn't. And so uh, DOJ sued in 2020. That lawsuit's ongoing. Uh, they allege, you know, unconstitutional treatment of men in, in Alabama in prisons, uh, you know, rampant sexual violence, drugs, uh, corruption, all the things that we see every day. Uh, uh, so so that so it's possible that if this, if this continues and Alabama doesn't address the prison crisis, uh, that the federal government could, could uh, re- take over, be a receivership. And so they would tell us how to run our prisons and how to pay for them. 
so that, that's where it's sort of headed. You know, who knows what's going to happen with that lawsuit. But uh, thankfully, the attention the federal government's paying uh, is shedding more light on this problem. And that's sort of, you know, what we need. You mentioned that, you know, we're not we're not treating these people well. And and I, I think, you know, that so many of these are happen so many of these deaths are happening with drugs. Um, you know, I think that's one aspect of it. Uh, but in general, even though just factually speaking, we are a, a quote tough on crime state, you know, what whatever that means in, in the in, in the public consciousness. And even though that's the case, the vast, vast, vast majority of our prison population will be out of prison at some point. How are yeah. our how are our prisons preparing the population to re-enter society? That's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, so that's exactly right. Uh, 95, 96% of people that are in our prisons are going to be released at some point if they survive them. Uh, and so what do we want them to look like when they come in our communities? Right. Do we want them to be addicted to new drugs? Do we want them right. to not have had any kind of treatment? Uh, do we want them to have uh, services to help them uh, reintegrate into society? Uh, you know, that's stuff we need to focus on. Those are the things that, that can help fix this problem. Uh, that, that helps recidivism too, right? You know, if you right. give people treatment, uh, they don't go back as much. We know that. The statistics show that. Uh, so so th- this focus on just building new prisons, uh, it leaves out all that other stuff that we know works, right? The Department of Justice said in the lawsuit, these new prisons alone are not going to fix it. I mean, right. that's in the suit. Uh, so so I, I wish folks would pay more attention to that and really focus on these other areas. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, because it's so important because – the you know people people like me who think that incarceration is playing too large of a role in society uh you know i i'm accused of being a you know a utopian pie in the sky bleeding heart liberal or something like that um and that i don't care about the victims or whatever but but the the fact of the matter is is that 95% of these people like you said are going to be out on the streets again and and that's the way that 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 people want it. Nobody thinks you should get life in prison. Nobody thinks that these people who who are by and large, you know, not literally murdering people, nobody thinks they should be locked away for life. Even if you even if you hurt someone, even if you're, you know, uh, uh, convicted of, of violent assault. Right. Nobody thinks that that should be a life sentence. And so the question then is, OK, we know for a fact they're going to be out. How can we make sure that when they come out, they're not worse than they came in? And that question is is just not being answered by the by the prisons in Alabama. Yeah, that's a great point, and and that's and we're not doing justice to the victims, right? You right. know, if if we're not treating this problem and and, and trying to solve uh, the problem, these folks get out. We're not doing justice to the victims. You know, it's 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 an unjust system all around. Somebody um, asked in the chat uh, about the role that private prisons play in Alabama, and I think I think my understanding is that private prisons are not a player in Alabama. That we do not have pri- private prisons, but a lot of the amenities uh, that that prisons do have in Alabama, like uh, the calls and stuff like that, uh, those are contracted out. But the prisons themselves are publicly run. That's correct, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, there, there was a push earlier on. The governor's plan called for a, a build lease program so that uh, a private prison company would have built our prisons, our new prisons, and we would have leased them back. We would still operate them, but they would have built them. Uh, so that fell through uh, for several reasons. Um, and so now we're, we're just going to build them with, with, uh, with our own money. And we're, we're, you know, we've got these plans in place. But, yeah, there, there are uh, contractors, obviously, who provide health care, uh, communications, you know, security systems, things like that. And they're going to make a ton of money with these new prisons. I mean, that's just folks are, are going to make a lot of money with these new prisons. Um, and it's those contractors, those architects, planners, um, developers. Yeah, there's a lot of money to be made in prison construction. Right, right. Um, so we had somebody else ask in the chat, and and, and I, I brought this up to you yesterday uh, when we were talking about your appearance, the, um, the botched execution last week. Can you talk to us about what happened there? Yeah, so I, I don't. All I know is is what I've read. I did have a couple of friends that covered that uh, execution, but but from what we know and the recording that's been done pre, uh, prior or post um, execution is that for two and a half hours, you know, he he was he, something was going on. You know, uh, it was delayed by two and a half hours. The recording and, and an independent autopsy shows that uh, he apparently was struggling so bad against those uh, straps on his sleeve that he cut into his arms. Uh, there, there were there were incision marks in the, in the corner of his elbow that looks like they tried to access a vein. He may have moved and it, it ripped open a bit. It looked it looks to be uh, pretty severe. We don't know. Uh, my friends who covered it said that he looked unconscious when they brought him out. Uh, there was no indication that he was conscious. But ADOC says, well, he wasn't sedated. So we don't really know what happened in those two and a half hours. And we won't know for some time because the, the state's autopsy won't be made public until after a grand jury hears it. And that could take apparently several months uh, to make sure that the cause of death was, you know, the execution. Um, so yeah, there's some secrecy behind that, but that, that, that is, that has been ADOC's modus for a while. You know, they don't, they don't like um, transparency. They fought against it quite a bit. So it, it doesn't surprise me uh, that this happened. It's terrible. Uh, we, we still don't really know. And I'm sure we'll find out more when that, that state autopsy report's released. Can you speak to the broader issue of their transparency uh, of of the lack of transparency among the the Department of Corrections and and the effect that that has on folks like uh, you know folks like you who are trying to figure out what's going on in the prisons and then on the public who by virtue of that secrecy and and uh, the fact that folks like you have have a difficult time understanding what's going on in there um, that we don't know a lot of what's going on in the prisons. Yeah, and it's not just us. It's families of people that are incarcerated, right? You know, people that die, they, they don't get much information at all. And, it, and they struggle with it. Every family member that I speak to struggles with that. They, they want to know what happened to their loved one, and they're not getting full answers. Uh, so ADOC, to give you an example, as, as, they don't have a policy to release information on uh, when, when, a, when a prisoner dies. Uh, they do have a new quarterly report that releases some information uh, that they have to publish, but they don't name the people and it lags behind several months. And so we really don't have a clear picture, even on deaths. We, we rely on tips from other other people inside and family members. Um, and then we have to get it confirmed through ADOC. So it's like a game, you know, it's, it's, and I've asked them before as a journalist, like, hey, why, why aren't we just make it a policy where you release these names? You know, other states do it. And they were like, yeah, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that policy. And then, you know, nothing happened. And so we still have to rely on on tips to get this information out. Uh, it, look, it, they they know that that their prison system is broken, right? They know that the Department of Justice is breathing down their necks. 
they don't want this information to get out. It, it makes them look bad. And so they fight against it. So it, it's, it's unfortunate because if they, if they put as much effort into fixing the problem as to keeping reporters and, and others from, from learning about these things, we might get somewhere. But Right, right. Uh, we've spent some time talking about the state of Alabama's prisons, and, and I, I think that is important because – you know, j- just for the fact that these are these are people in there, and and you know they're, uh, you know I think most people's faith or lack of faith traditions are going to tell us that they're you know our brothers and sisters at least to a certain extent, and so we want to know we want to understand what we are doing to these people as a state, uh, but also because our audience, you know, just by the numbers, our audience, even on the conservative talk station that, that we go on, which is not our whole audience. Maybe it's maybe it's something like, I don't know, 30, 40 percent of the total people that listen to this show. Uh, but even on that audience, who is even in that audience, who's going to be disposed to tough on crime type stuff? You know, oh, I don't care what the what what these prisoners go through. Um, it's working class people just just by the numbers. Uh, that are going to be listening to this program because they're the majority of people are working class. The majority of people have to work for a living. The majority of people are 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 infinitely closer to being homeless than they are to being a millionaire or a billionaire. And working class folks, folks that are not rich, are so much more likely to have to endure these conditions than a rich person. And you've been pointing out multiple instances of folks being arrested just because they couldn't pay fines. And I was under the impression that debtors' prisons were unconstitutional. Um, But from your reporting, it it seems like, to a certain extent, they're alive and well in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. People are surprised to hear that, but it happens in in municipal courts every day. And so what's going on is, and I'm sure you've heard about the Brookside situation, um, but our previous research shows that uh, 50% of the people who owe court debt, these, these are fines and fees, uh, will go to jail at some point. Half. Wow. Uh, it's, it's pretty staggering. Um, uh, yeah, th- so there is court precedence, right? So there was a 1983 Supreme Court decision that said, hey, you can't throw people in jail just because they can't afford to pay fees unless you hold a hearing and you determine that they willfully chose not to pay it, right? But they didn't really define what willfully was. And so judges are out here going, well, you got a nice car, you know, you got a cell phone, right? Why didn't you pay this? And instead of, of allowing them to work it off, that they're, they're having them arrested. Um, there was a lawsuit in 2015 by Southern Poverty Law Center that alleged that Alexander City ran a modern day debtors prison, right? Uh, you know, they were jailing folks, uh, giving them 20 bucks a day to pay off that debt. The city wasn't getting any of that money, right? They were paying to house them, to jail them. Uh, but uh, the city eventually settled and, and agreed to pay $680,000 to like 190 people who they had arrested. And so at that point, some cities in Alabama was like, all right, well, let's let's pause. We, we can't keep doing this because it appears to be illegal. Right. <laughs> and, and I know I was sat in one court recently that they don't do that anymore. Right. They have checks. Uh, they, they check on a person's actual ability to pay. They ask them questions. Uh, they don't immediately arrest somebody if they don't show up for a, a review hearing, which is when you come to talk about your old your old fines and fees. But a lot of courts uh, are still doing just that. I mean, I've seen so many people get arrested. There was a fellow that came into court on a, on a review hearing to talk about his old fines and fees. He owed about 650 bucks or so. Uh, the judge said, why haven't you paid it? And he said, well, look, I've had the same fast food job for the past two years. You know, my hours have been cut. Uh, I've got child support that comes out of my check. I just haven't been able to afford to pay this. And the judge just wasn't happy with that answer. He didn't ask him any other questions. 
he just had him arrested and sent him to jail for 12 days. And the guy's like, now I'm going to lose my job. Really? So that, you know, that's how am I going to pay ever? Uh, so it makes no sense. And it happens in courts all over. Uh, that's what I'm going to be focusing on this year is looking at fines and fees and how it intersects with people who just can't afford to pay these things. Uh, there's a great documentary uh, by uh, John Archibaldnail.com called uh, Pulled Over, Pulled Under, which which highlights the story of Callie Greer, who's a wonderful woman who works with us at Appleseed, uh, and her two daughters who were arrested multiple times simply because they could not afford to pay these enormous, sometimes very enormous court fines and fees. Um you know, you can I've seen a, a, a ticket. This fellow came in and he had a, a ticket for running a red light. I think it was a $50 ticket. The court fine was $380. So <laughs> what's going on? We're, we're financing our courts and our, and our state governments and our local governments on the backs of the poorest people in our communities. And when they can't pay, they get into a cycle of arrest, rearrest, retickets, more court fines, more court fees. And it just never seems to go away. It sinks these families. And it sinks their friends and families who have to pay these court debts to get them out of jail. Right. And isn't there something like that you have to pay some sort of personnel fee or something when you're on probation? It, or is, maybe that's another state. I can't. I, I didn't ask you ask you about this yesterday, but it, it seems like I remember having read something some months ago about um, how debt adds up. If you go to prison for debt, right, and and that there are fees oh, yeah. that you have to pay while you're on probation or for tests and stuff like that, is that the case in Alabama? Yeah, it's it's very much the case. Yeah, it's very costly to be poor here. Um, it, it it costs quite a lot. Uh, you, you pay for all of these services on the back end. So you're, if you have to take drug tests, you pay for that, um, and and you pay an additional fines and fees. I mean, it just it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, we make it so difficult for people. Uh, to improve their lives here. You know, people, some people make mistakes, right? And, and, you, and you should get a fine. Uh, you run a red light, you should be fined for it. You shouldn't have to pay three times as much for a court fee, uh, you know, because we didn't, we decided as a society, we didn't want to fund our, our, our courts and our, and our federal governments and our state governments ourselves. We wanted to cut taxes and then put that on the backs of poor folks. But yeah, it's, it, it, it's absolutely true. There's, there are a lot of, it, it costs a bit um, to be poor here. Yeah, I have. Um, I, I got a speeding ticket that was like something like two hundred dollars or, or, or something like that, and um, a hundred and seventy of it was was court fees, and 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 it, it, the, the 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 ticket itself was only twenty or thirty dollars, and the the <laughs> it was the court fee that was so much money, and and even for somebody like me, you know, whatever two hundred, it, it's not fun to pay it, but I'm I'm not at risk of not paying it. Uh, but somebody else, they could go to jail <laughs> for not paying this thing. And that's, uh, that's I don't know, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's two separate systems, right? It's it's a system for folks who have a little bit of money. And boy, if you don't, it's a whole different outcome. And, and really, it's just because you're poor. There's no other yeah. reason, right? Um, it's a shame. Uh, Eddie, I really appreciate your time. Where can folks follow your work? Yeah, so uh, go to our website, alabamaappleseed.org, read our reports, uh, donate if you want to. Um, uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, Burt Culture Eddie. Uh, uh, yeah, just get involved. Ask your legislators. Uh, tell them that you're, you're concerned about this stuff. Uh, tell them you're concerned about these fines and fees. You don't understand uh, what's going on. You're concerned about our prisons. We need you to be active. That really helps. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Thanks, Thank Eddie. You. I really appreciate it. That was great.
Yeah, and a- Appleseed does fantastic work. I really recommend folks check it out. Yep. Uh, We're going to go to a break, folks. Don't go anywhere. On the other side, we are going to be talking, uh, we're going to be playing an interview from Andrea Alvarez. She is running for Huntsville City School Board. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW-55V. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man-hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW-558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW-558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alright folks, you are listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is Adam Keller here, and I'm excited to bring you our next interview. This is with Miss Alvarez, who's running for Huntsville School Board District 3. Uh, really excited to have her on the show. Uh, Miss Alvarez, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me, Adam. Absolutely. Glad to do it. So just to start out, could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, and really what motivated you to decide to run for a Huntsville School Board? Um, So I'm a proud mother of three children who all go to um, District 3 Huntsville City Schools. I am also a product of District 3 Huntsville City Schools, Um, and so I made an intentional decision to move back to District 3 um, to educate my kids um, I am by day, I'm a full-time working mom. I'm a budget analyst, um, contractor supporting the Missile Defense Agency. Um, and then um, I also am a very advent, um, advantageous volunteer in the community. I support Huntsville Hospital. Um, I also am um, serving my fifth year on the Challenger Elementary School PTA. The past two years I've been president um, and then I had to roll off. And so now I'm treasurer. Um, the reason I'm running is, is really, I feel like our, our schools have been on a negative trajectory for, um, a good decade, maybe even longer. Um, and we need to get them back. I graduated about 20 years ago and I know what our schools are capable of being. And so I was, um, quite shell shocked when I had my kids go to the same schools and they're getting different results than I got. Um, I feel like we just need, um, less politics in our school system. And we need more people who actually have a best interest to be there. Like myself, Um, my youngest is a first grader. So I have 12 more years in this system and um, I just really need um, things to be better than what I'm seeing right now. Awesome. Well, as a parent of a first grader myself, I I know the struggle and I know how important it is to feel comfortable um, sending your child to school five days a week. It's, you know, it weighs heavy on us as parents and, it should weigh heavy on everyone as a member of the community. So tell us a little bit about your platform. What are you running on as a candidate for Huntsville School Board? Um, so as as president of the PTA, I was I'm, I'm in the school weekly, sometimes daily. I am, I'm talking to the teachers, the counselors. I'm seeing how things are run. I'm seeing their lack of supplies. I'm seeing their lack of staffing. Um, I, I'm seeing these issues firsthand. And when I started to reach out and ask board members about these issues, I did not get the response I thought I would get. I I was almost gaslit and and pretty much told that it's a lack of parents in the school. It's a lack of teachers who will just never be happy. Um, It's a lack of funding. It's it's all these things other than school board and administration. 
Um, so I have made it my life's purpose, uh, a trajectory I never thought I would be on to advocate for our teachers because at our school alone, we have 20% turnover year after year. Um, Huntsville City Schools has some of the lowest turnover for um, the first three years of teaching in the state. We're at 36% um, ten, um, turnover when the state average is 50%. So what are we doing in Huntsville that's so much worse than the rest of the state? And when I talk to teachers, it is um, it is a morale issue. It is they don't feel supported. It is they say they need things and do not receive them. And so a primary um, component of my platform is listening to teachers and getting them what they need so that one, they stay and two, that they're effective. Um, When we have teachers, new teachers every single year and we're losing the history and we're losing those long term teachers that have the skills that can't be taught in school, we are only hurting our children. Um, secondary recruitment and retention. I feel, um, in my industry and of course I'm DOD, we have, we have great benefits. We have lots of time off. We have lots of perks and we don't have that for our teachers. Um, they, they have requested more training. They feel like they're not adequate for their jobs every day. Um, more time off maternity leave, um, work-life balance. I mean, things that the the whole world is going towards except for the teaching industry. And so we in Huntsville, when we have the means and the people who can set up these types of strategies, we could actually increase recruitment and retention just by having the best benefits in the state. Um, so I think we're going to do that. Um, thirdly, literacy. Um, our third graders are not doing well. We are 76% proficient in literacy um, as a school-wide system, and the state average is 78%. Again, Huntsville is the smartest city in the state, arguably the smartest city in the country. Why are we below the state average in Alabama, who is already 49th, 50th in education? So we in Huntsville need to figure out what is happening. Why are we failing so so much with literacy when that wasn't the case 20 years ago? Um, And then finally, communication and transparency. Um, Like I said, when I have reached out, I was not provided policy. I was not provided numbers. I was not provided anything. It was go find it, go find it. And and then we'll talk. And that is not what we need. Um, I came at it with, with a willingness to help with a, I want to get my hands dirty. How can I help this system? How can I help teacher morale? And I was pretty much just blown off. And when you have parents like me who are willing to stop what they're doing in their busy lives and help, let us help you. And you can only do that if you're communicating your issues with us and if you're transparent in your responses. Um, so I was quickly I was quickly put on you know the list of being somewhat disgruntled. And I was like, all I did was reach out to help. And I'm proven as someone who can help solve problems. So it was very disheartening to see how it really was. Yeah, I think it's clear that your own experiences as a public school parent really fed into your drive to, to run for office. Um, and I'll just say personally that I think your experience was not unique. It has not been unique. And I, I imagine on the campaign trail, you've run into other parents and educators who've had uh, similar type experiences. But I really have. I, I get several emails a day. That's for sure. You you just mentioned it there at the end. And I know you've talked a lot on the campaign trail about improving transparency and public input in regards to Huntsville City Schools. Mm-hmm. After all, this is a public school system uh, by and for the public, or at least it's supposed to be. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, what you have in mind and why is that important? 
So I think um, the main reason it is important is because we are in the social media age. We are angry behind a keyboard. We are people who rile each other up. We like, we share, we crowdsource, we crowdfund. We, we are doing things that are negatively impacting the public relations of our school system. And a lot of that can be solved with proper communication. If you can explain to people why a decision was made, if you can explain to people how a mistake was made, if you can explain all these things, and also if you can actually admit when a mistake was made and not try to defend it, that will happen less. What, it, what has happened is there's a great divide of us versus them, parents versus administration, teachers versus administration, um, teachers versus kids, teachers versus politics. It is, there's so many wars going on. And my whole campaign premise is let's build some bridges. Let's, let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's have the hard discussions. Let's have the mudslinging. Let's do it in a forum where there is transparency. And some of my, um, but actually both of my opponents are, are blocking people on social media. They're deleting comments. They are doing things that could hurt their image at all. And that's not what you're signing up for. If you're going to be in public service, you have to take the hit sometimes. And it's for the benefit of us all. And so I am always going to be transparent. Um, I am a cleared professional on the arsenal. So I do understand that some things cannot be discussed to the public. I do understand that there is harm of telling people all your decisions. Um, But I also do believe that giving people more information than they're getting now can solve a lot of our problems in this community. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and and I will say as someone who taught in Huntsville City Schools, who spent uh, over five years representing the workers in Huntsville City Schools, communication was one of the biggest issues that I encountered uh, in more than one administration. And, And I think you really something you said that resonated with me is is listening when you whether the issue is um, teacher morale, teacher turnover, literacy, it all starts with listening to the folks who are involved, the students, the parents, the educators, everyone who has a stake. They're experiencing it day after day. Why not listen to what they have to say? Uh, yes. And, and I've been trained in customer service. I was a 1-800 suicide counselor. I have been trained in communication um, and active listening. And the thing is, is perception is reality for most people. And so we have to take that into mind. If someone is on Facebook or on social media or complaining in an email, that is their truth, whether it's actual truth or not. And we have to take the time, meet with those people and make sure that they come down off that ledge and understand that maybe they were a little mistaken or maybe they jumped to a conclusion. It takes time. Communication takes a lot of time. Um, but I'm willing to do that. Right. And I think something that that's important for folks to remember is that sometimes your biggest critics are the ones who care the most. Uh, right. Because it's easy to remain silent. But if you are the person sending the angry emails, something resonated with you, you know, whether it's based on truth or not, something resonated, something motivated you. Uh, and, and it's worth listening. It's worth addressing. So I think that's really important, and I, I appreciate that you're you have this emphasis on listening, on transparency, and on clear communication. Uh, and communication goes beyond PR. It goes beyond buying billboards. It goes beyond hiring consultants. Uh, it has to be authentic and genuine. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. That was just a snippet of our interview with Andrea Alvarez. Uh, we talked for over half an hour. 
If you want to see the full interview, check it out. It's already up on YouTube and on Facebook. Um, we went into more detail about labor relations. After all, this is a labor radio show, and we're very proud of that. Uh, so we talked more in depth about labor relations, teacher turnover, uh, public transparency, citizen comments at the school board meetings, privatization of our support staff and support services, So, uh, as well as more about the district, District 3, which is Southeast Huntsville, the Grissom High School area, Challenger, Mountain Gap, Weatherly, Chaffee, Farley, uh, that neck of the woods. So don't forget, y'all, August 23rd, that is Tuesday. That is the local elections in the city of Huntsville. There will be uh, three districts having ballots that day, two, three, and four. Um, for District 3, unfortunately, there is not a challenger to Jenny Robinson on the city council. So uh, Ms. Alvarez will be the only, uh, that race will be the only one on the ballot in District 3 for school board. She's running against uh, an incumbent who is totally useless and a complete right-wing crank who is also running in the race, who just got uh, destroyed in her GOP primary for state house, and I guess mm. now decided to uh, spread her nonsense to the school board level. So y'all show up to vote. It's very important. There's some solid candidates uh, for city council and school board, and there are some that are uh, completely so asinine. <laughs> so uh, it would be great to uh, have a good turnout. Turnout will probably be very, very low. So if you're listening to this program and you could talk to, like, two people in your life, um, you could make a real difference. Uh, we'd be remiss as a union talk show if we didn't mention that workers at Huntsville Utilities are unionizing with friends of the show, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Hell yeah. Local 558. Love to see it. Love to see it. Details about the campaign have been pretty sparse. Um and at this time, all we can relay is uh, what's been reported in the media, which doesn't really have much details about the specific issues that they want addressed, uh, but said that they are looking for an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, which is something like a collective bargaining agreement. Um, but it's different in ways that I'm not totally clear on. Yeah. Um, um, if, if you don't mind, I'll just expand there okay. what it an MOU would be in, in lieu of a collective bargaining agreement because public employees in the state of Alabama do not have the same extent of union and collective bargaining rights that you would get in private industry, right? So the law has been interpreted at least to mean that the city of Huntsville or Huntsville Utilities could not sit down and have a collective bargaining agreement with their workers in the way that, say, United Launch Alliance can with the Machinist Union. Uh, but an MOU would be something as, you know, a, a, a step closer to that direction where at least there would be something in writing that could be enforced. And I think that is um, that that's really huge. And just want to send my love and respect and solidarity to all of the workers with Huntsville Utilities who are uh, organizing and to IBEW. Um, if there's anything that we can do on our end to support this effort, we definitely want to do so. 
Um, yeah, they filled up the city council. Uh, like there was more than thirty Huntsville utility workers out there to support the, you know, to to show their support for the unionization effort. Right, and so I imagine uh, as this campaign unfolds, there may be some need for backup, uh, whether it's attending council meetings or, or contacting council members. Uh, we'll see how the city responds. We'll see how Huntsville Utilities Management responds. Um, you know, if anyone's listening, if you're connected at all to this campaign, like I said, feel free to reach out to us. Anything we can do, uh, we we support this effort because it's the right thing to do. You know, and we understand that there may be workers there who you know don't necessarily agree with all the things that we say on this radio program, and that's fine. Um, it's not about whether or not you agree with us or not. It's about what is the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is for these workers to have representation and for them to be able to secure an MOU that addresses their concerns and their needs uh, and for the management of Huntsville Utilities and for the city of Huntsville's leadership to negotiate in good faith, free of any retaliation. And I think that's what we need to see, and and that's what uh, these workers deserve. Yep. Tony Quillen, business manager of IBEW 558, said in a letter to AL.com that other cities in Alabama do have MOU, so it's not like they're going out on a limb here. Right. Sheffield, Muscle Shoals, Tuscumbia, Red Bay, and Russellville all have memorandums of understanding with their Up employees. In, uh, that uh, Northwest Alabama IBEW stronghold. Mm-hmm. Yep. AL.com did receive some comments from Huntsville Utility CEO Wes Kelly and Huntsville Mayor Tommy Battle, but the comments were not totally not very substantive they're more or less you know we're aware of the issue looking into it so we're going to see what happens and we'll keep y'all posted for sure absolutely uh adam we've got an epi report uh that that you wanted to talk about um as we're wrapping up right yeah that's right um I just wanted to mention this because last month the Economic Policy Institute released a new study on the minimum wage in the United States and from EPI I'm quoting here the value of the federal minimum wage has reached its lowest point in 66 years according to an EPI analysis of recently released consumer price index data so when you account for price increases in June, the current federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour is now worth less than at any point since February 1956. That's uh, quite a while ago, 1956. Uh, at that time, the federal minimum wage was $0.75 cents per hour, uh, which would be equivalent to about $7.19 in June 2022 dollars. Uh, and, of course, inc- inflation has increased even more since June, uh, something to account for as well. Last July marked the longest period without a minimum wage increase since Congress established the federal minimum wage in 1938. Uh, quoting again, after the longest period in history without an increase, the federal minimum wage today is worth 27 percent less than 13 years ago and 40 percent less than its peak in 1968. Had the minimum wage kept up with its 1968 value, it would be over $12 an hour. Of course, Alabama does not have a minimum wage and thus relies on the federal minimum wage. While states and cities across the country have increased their minimum wages, Alabama's leadership refuses to do so. Uh, you may remember a few years back there were raised the wage campaigns in cities across the state. 
the city of Birmingham actually passed their own increase, and campaigns elsewhere, including right here in Huntsville, were gaining steam. And it was then that the Alabama legislature intervened, passing a law banning local governments from passing their own wage increases. Turns out, the small government legislators felt they should dictate what cities and counties across the state can and can't do to benefit working people in their communities. Also, a recent study from the spring was released by Oxfam America, and that revealed more about the scale of low-wage work across the country, including right here in Alabama. Uh, We just spoke with Eddie Burkhalter, and Eddie wrote in the Alabama Political Reporter that the study, quote, found that more than 40% of Alabama workers make below 15 an hour, while an even greater percentage of black and Hispanic Alabamians make less than 15 an hour. The state is among the seven states with the largest concentration of low-wage workers. So, EPI's report shows that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would benefit tens of millions of Americans. It is long past time we raise the wage for working-class folks in Alabama and across the country. We had somebody in the chat, Sid Nanda, mention that restaurant workers get paid even less, right? And that's correct. Uh, Servers... Folks who uh, get tips, they can make less than the minimum wage, and servers um, <clears throat> and servers make two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. Uh, so tip your servers, people. Right now, if of course legally they're supposed to make at least the seven twenty-five, the assumption being that if the company pays you two thirteen, you'll have enough tips to make up the other five dollars and change per hour. Right. Um, should you not receive that that enough that amount in tips, the company is supposed to make you whole there to at least get you up to seven twenty five an hour. Uh, but that's one of those issues that uh, restaurant workers across the country and certainly in Alabama deal with. Yeah, they're supposed to. They're, they're supposed, supposed to. to, but a lot of times they don't. Um, and, and we, that's, we spoke you know, to the, the Department of Labor on yeah. the show uh, where where we talked about those kind of issues. There's a lot of misinformation out right. there. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a lot of employers who will try to skirt the law, break the law if they can get away with it. Sometimes they don't even know the law. Uh, frankly, we assume too much of them sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so as we're wrapping up here on the radio, the first half of the program, uh, we've got a few plugs for you. The United Mine Workers uh, Strike Pantry down in Brookwood flooded um, with uh, some of the big rains last week. So any help that you can give would be greatly appreciated as these miners have been on strike for over 500 days. Over 500 days. That uh, link is going to be paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. One more reminder, the new album is out from Lee Baines and the Glory Fires. The album is called Old Town Folks and is through Don Giovanni Records one of these days here in the next here in the next month or so. We're definitely going to have to get Lee on the program to talk about that. And uh, one more reminder that Tuesday, August 23rd, 
is the local election in Huntsville. Huntsville City uh, Council and Board of Education seats for districts two, three, and four will be on the ballot. Very important that we show up in this low turnout election. Labor Notes has a series of online trainings this month, including Meet Your Fellow Troublemakers, Investigating Grievances, Secrets of a Successful Organizer. Uh, So if you're looking for some fantastic labor training, go to labornotes.org and register. You'll get some really good information there. And uh, speaking of Labor Notes, we are very excited about Labor Notes coming to Alabama and hosting Alabama's first Troublemakers School. Uh, It's going to be on Saturday, October 15th. Saturday, October 15th. So register now at labornotes.org. Put it on your calendar, y'all. Put it on your calendar. Uh, you go to labornotes.org, go to events, and register for the Alabama Troublemaker School. We're going to be coming out with uh, speakers and panels and workshops here in the next month or so, but you want to go ahead and get your registration in so you, you want to be left there. out. You want to be there. I'm going to be there. Adam's going to be there. Lots of folks are going to be there. Energy Alabama is holding a Huntsville meetup on September 15th, so put that on your calendar as well. From 4 to 7, hosted at Straight to Ale Brewing, uh, Energy Alabama members get a free drink ticket. Yeah. So uh, uh, leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Find us online where we are going into overtime we're going to be talking about uh what to do about lazy co-workers uh answering some viewer comments but most importantly we're going to be talking to john dunn a former miner from the uk about the big miner strike that they had in the 80s i'm really excited about that bringing on this fella from across the pond talking about the uk miner strike um so find us online at the valley labor report see you soon